G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mard, and today I'm really excited to have Michael Yardney along. And for those that don't know him, he's been recently voted one of Australia's top 50 influential thought leaders. And I wanted to have a chat about his broader perspective on what's happening in the East Coast property markets and how these trends may influence us in Perth. And while he's best known as a property expert, Michael is also Australia's leading expert in psychology of success and wealth creation. And he's the author of nine books and the international bestseller, Rich Habits, Poor Habits, which has been translated into five languages. He was once again voted Australia's leading property investment advisor. And this is the fifth time he's won a similar award in the last seven years. And his opinions are highly sought after and frequently quoted in the media. So I'm thrilled he's made time to chat with us today. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. So welcome to your first time on our podcast, Michael. We go back a long way, don't we? And I don't know if you recall, but it's back to the days of Summersoft Forum when I was doing my first renovation and you were, I was in my early 20s and you were on there helping me with all kinds of things to make that one a success. We've both come such a long way since then and uh, both on different sides of the country. And it's great to connect again, isn't it? Lovely, Jared. Well, we have connected a few times in between, but no, I didn't remember that. It's really (laughs) interesting when you look back at the Summersoft Forum, when you look back at API Magazine and a lot of those things, where are they now? There were a lot of people who were big names then who aren't around 20 years, 10 years later. So I guess a lesson from that is be careful who you listen to. (laughs) Well, I did all right getting your advice at the time and I guess... We've both become uh, successful on the two different sides of the country. So, yes, we have. And uh, it's your broader perspective, I guess, today and the intimate knowledge of the East Coast property market that I wanted to get the inside view on because over here in Perth, we can be in a bit of a bubble, if you will, and not understand the broader influences. And I guess I wanted my listeners to get some context as to how Perth fits into that larger perspective, Mm. and what could be ahead for us and the rest of the country. I guess many people would think that uh, how the markets have performed has been a big surprise. I I wanted to ask you straight off the bat, did you foresee this comeback in our economy and the property markets happening so quickly, or is it caught you a bit by surprise too? No, I didn't see it do as well as this. Didn't expect it to. Look, last year when many bank economists predicted 15, 20, 30% falls in property, I disagreed with them. I'm on record in March and April last year suggesting that well-located A-grade homes and investment-grade properties would only fall about 5% in value. And I suggested secondary properties probably fall 10% in value. And I got it right. And I also called the turning point in our property markets in October last year when we could see on the ground what was happening long before it showed in the official statistics. However, Jared, I didn't really expect the market to rebound so quickly. Now, a major element of that's the pent-up demand, but it really has been just the huge change in consumer confidence that I don't think anyone really expected. Mm-hmm. Certainly didn't expect it over here in Perth. I mean, we've been waiting 
and had many false starts on our recovery. And we, of course, we had the Banking Royal Commission that put hikes on things. And we had the election with a threat to negative gearing that also set us back. And we were just waiting for our time in the sun here in Perth and that time's come, but so is the rest of the capitals also performing very well. Yes, they have. And so this is really unusual, this cycle. Every market, other than the inner city high-rise markets, have actually performed strongly. So this is different to other property cycles I've seen. It's at a time of low population growth, when in the past it's usually been related to strong population growth and strong wages growth. Uh, It's at a time when interest rates are lower than they've ever been. But it's really been a combination of factors, uh, a perfect storm of factors that have driven our property markets to grow really strongly. So what have you seen, I guess, occurring to the East Coast capital cities? Take us inside those. Well, the property market turned in October last year, but Melbourne was the last one to turn because we were still having lockdowns even into late last year. But now all the property markets are stronger than they were 12 months ago. All the property markets are doing well. And over the last year, Melbourne's only increased 2.3% over the year. But but in the last three months alone, Melbourne's grown closer to 6%. In other words, it's caught up from the falls that it's had. Perth, well, being in Perth, that's done really well in 6.7% over the last 12 months, according to CoreLogic. Sydney's done a little bit better at 7.6% over the last 12 months. Brisbane, close to 10%, and Adelaide's been the outperformer, the outstanding performer. So one of the problems when you see these median price Mm. figures, Jared, is that that's the median price. That doesn't mean all properties have gone up in value that way, and these tend to talk about houses and apartments, and over the last three, four months this year, houses have grown probably double the value of apartments. And there are some apartments that keep falling in value, particularly in those high-rise inner city CBD Legoland apartment towers. Mm. I think that would be happening in each of the capitals as well. We've got our areas of oversupply and, and, and over-density. It's going to probably take a good 18, 24 months for that to be taken up, depending on how much yes. else comes on. Mm, that's right. So what's been driving the markets over there? We've had a lot of it's mainly been home buyer activity occurring here and we we we've started to see some investors from your market uh, in Sydney and Melbourne especially coming over to Perth but it's mainly been home homeowners driving things and then that obviously drives different segments of the market are you seeing similar or what's happening yes very there? similar but I see this as a cycle of upgraders, and it's happening at all levels, Jared. So yes. tenants are upgrading. They've got lots of availability. So if they don't like the accommodation they're in, they actually move to nicer rental accommodation. A lot of tenants are now upgrading to become first-home buyers, particularly where you are in Perth because you've got even more incentives than the other states. But we know the government has given a lot of incentives to first-home buyers, and that's worked. What they don't always realise, though, of course, Jared, is that those incentives were not really for them. They were for the building industry. They were for the construction industry, for the trades, and they also recognise that uh, when people move into homes, they use other services and they buy televisions and fridges and things like that. 
So that's worked really well. So the first home buyers are upgrading. Established home buyers, money's cheaper. Established home owners, money's cheaper than it's ever been. So I'm seeing them upgrade as well. And so people are moving house, being buoyed by rising values and thinking I better get in. Similarly, the value of their homes, established home buyers are bringing a trade in the market. So they're feeling comfortable. Baby boomers are also upgrading, but often not to their house. What they're doing is upgrading lifestyle and they're, they're, they're downsizing to, to apartments or, or townhouses. Millennials are moving out of the high-rise apartment buildings in the CBD now into family-friendly apartments or, or homes because they're having kids. So this is an interesting cycle of upgrading at all levels, and that's mm-hmm. what's driving it, mainly, as you suggested, owner-occupiers and tenants are starting to come in. The latest finance figures have suggested there's more tenants come, uh, more investors. I'm sorry, tenant investors are coming into the market, and more investors are coming back now too, Jared. So, have investors been very active? I guess as far as your clients go, and from what you've seen, many of your clients are being active in the market and investors in general over Easter. Well. Our business basically helps investors, and while we help a lot of first home, uh, while we help a lot of established home buyers, in general, it's investors we deal with. So we've never been as busy, not just first time investors, but particularly established investors who've got equity, who feel comfortable, whose businesses have done well, whose jobs are secure. When people feel secure in their jobs, they're investing in property. Having said that, Overall, when you look at finance figures, investors are only making up about 20% of all property transactions, while in general, in the long term, investors make up about 30% of all transactions. Now, we remember during boom times, they actually got to 50, 60%. And that's when the Reserve Bank and that's when APRA were worried. The reason they're not worried about rising property values at present is because it's responsible homeowners who've got the ability to repay debt who are taking on the debt at the moment. So where are the property investors that you are working with? Where are they tending to focus? And I know you touched on you helping a a certain niche of clients. Our investors are doing it strategically. So when they invest, I guess there's three levers that they've got to uh, uh, pull, three... uh, areas that they've got to juggle. One is the budget, and that's determined by the bank. The second is location. So we're not prepared to allow our investors to compromise on that because location does 80% of the heavy lifting over the long term. And then you've got to buy the right property for that location. So where they invest is very much determined by their budgets. But from the many investors we're currently helping, interestingly, about half of them are investing in Brisbane. They're seeing the opportunity to buy a house in Brisbane with land within five, seven kilometres of the CBD for a price that they could only buy an apartment in Melbourne and probably a double garage. Mm. (laughs) Very affordable there still, isn't it? Yes, it is. But again, there's not one Brisbane property market. So in general, the markets at the moment are performing fragmented. So the high end of the market is outperforming and those are the areas that haven't suffered as much through COVID. They're the demographic people who have got uh, professions and what the Australian Bureau of Statistics calls skill level one and skill level two. Uh, they're more of those people. They've got job security. They've got multiple streams of income. They've often got shares and, and other investments. And so those areas, the established money areas are growing faster in all states, including in your yep. state in Western Australia. And that's what we're saying as well. 
And we're seeing a lot of, I guess, people still trapped overseas and uh, we're, mm. we're coming back to Perth, getting a buyer's agent ahead of time to purchase their home that they aren't sure when they'll be able to get back to. And we're also seeing a lot of, starting to see the migrants from over in Sydney and Melbourne moving to our more affordable capital. And we're, we're, we're obviously very affordable compared to the other cities and we've got lots of jobs so yes. those two things seem to be driving a bit of we had a, a big exodus of of our uh, people across to sydney and melbourne over the last five years as you'd know and we've been propping up your market but i guess it's flowing back a bit towards the more affordable capitals now well last year why on earth would you have come from perth to melbourne when we were locked down <laughs> exactly. so it's a combination of people coming to Perth, but it's also a combination of people not needing to leave Western Australia anymore. Yeah. Um, not being able to. So I guess how much wind is left in the sails? Because you see lots of commentary and various people are calling bubbles, but there's always people calling bubbles in every market, as you know, Michael. They, so what do you see ahead for growth over there? Okay. Well, probably investment and property ownership, in fact, is a game of finance with some houses thrown in the middle. So based on affordability, the lower interest rate environment plus wages growth, and there hasn't been a lot, but there has been some wages growth, um, the modelling shows that there's 20 to 25% growth likely in this whole property cycle. The Reserve Bank has come up with similar figures. I know Christopher Joy, a, uh, an economist from Coolabar Capital that I follow carefully, has come up with those figures. Dr. Andrew Wilson from My Housing Market, who I work very closely with, his research has suggested the same, that overall that's likely to happen. So we're really still at the beginning of this property cycle with 5 7% growth. So it's very likely that all our capital cities will see double-digit growth this year, but the second half of this year, the growth will be slower. It's gone from a white-hot market to a red-hot market, and it's going to slow down a bit uh, over the next little while based on the fact that affordability is going to be a bit of an issue. Pent-up demand is now being starting to catch up. But while in general these property values are going to go up, as we've already discussed, Jared, some areas are going to outperform others, as they always have, and a lot of this is going to do with demographics. And as I suggested, I think the high-end properties are going to outperform, and capital cities in general will outperform regional Australia. They haven't over the last year or two, but the latest CoreLogic figures suggested that that's the case. And as you correctly said, I still think the inner city CBD high-rise apartment market will languish. Mm. So how long will this cycle last? A long-winded answer to your question I see it going right through to 2022. And maybe if APRA or others bring in some macroprudential controls, it may slow a little bit. But this will be a shorter boom cycle than previous cycles because it just got out of the gate so quickly. So a cycle doesn't last for a particular length of time, number of months, a number of years. It has more to do with finance and consumer confidence, Jared. I guess what we're seeing in Perth is that we expect that there's a fair bit of runway ahead, potentially compared to Sydney and Melbourne that have performed better over the last five years, that we're coming off of a lower base. And in some of our suburbs, we're, we're not even back to the prices that we were 2014, 2015. So that we're still uh, 
catching the wind in our sails and there's uh, I feel like there's a fair bit of runway ahead for us. Well, I think the last decade has shown that there isn't one Australian property market and despite us yes. having all the same interest rates, we've all got the same tax system, we've got the same federal government, different local markets perform differently and that has to do with their local economies. So if the Perth economy and the mining economy, which is a major factor in Western Australia, keeps going and job security is there, then people will feel comfortable buying properties. The fact that it hasn't caught up with prices as of the past is not as important as how people feel about the, the ability to service debt, the job security, and how and where they want to live. Yeah, it makes sense. And do you see, a, you touched on a tightening of lending potentially occurring, and I am seeing it from a number of commentators. Why would that be imposed? Well, the Reserve Bank has very clearly come out and said, we're not going to raise interest rates until wages growth is up and until unemployment uh, drops to the point where wages growth goes up. So I can't see the Reserve Bank entering the housing market, affecting the housing market that way. They've just been on record too much to say that, to, uh, saying they won't do that to, to do something. APRA's job is to create a stable banking and insurance system. And if they believe that borrowers are over committing themselves, what they're going to do is slow down lending so that doesn't happen. And the chairman of APRA recently, Wayne By, said, we're not fussed by the housing market. They don't care if property values go up or down as long as the banking system is stable. Yeah, that's interesting. And so it's only going to occur, Jared, if people are borrowing more than they can afford. But if you remember, what the banks do is they put a buffer on, they put a serviceability buffer. So the interest rate you and I are paying has probably got a two in front of it, but they make sure that we can still borrow if interest rates go up to a five. But if we find, if they find that people are borrowing too high a percentage of their income, their, their regular income, or if loan-to-value ratios are going too high, or if investors start speculating too much and take on too much uh, interest-only loans and potentially at risk, only then would they come in as they have in the past. But I hope they've learned from their mistakes in the past because what they did is they went in a bit too heavily last time and they slowed the market down rather than allowing normal market forces and our very stable banking system to take care of itself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've always taken, I guess, a big focus on population growth and I've read your analysis over the years and it obviously makes a lot of sense because when we've got population moving to an area, it's just basic supply and demand that we've got more demand for the existing housing. So I guess how do you explain, I know you touched on it earlier, but how do you explain the strong growth without the overseas migration and what do you see happening moving forward when it does kick in? Well, that's a good point. Let me answer the second half of the question first. When immigration does kick in, when our borders open, it's only going to fuel our property markets further. And that could well happen at the time when, in a year or two's time, the market slows naturally anyway. And so, therefore, it could extend the cycle for longer. But to answer the question about what, why are we getting this growth now, it's not really population growth that drives our property markets, it's more demographics, which in part includes how many of us there are, but also how we want to live and where we want to live. And rather than population growth, it's actually family formation. So 
Interestingly, uh, I had another grandchild. Pam and I now, between us, have got 11 <laughs> grandchildren. Amanda, my daughter, had a, a little girl a few weeks ago. So more population, but she didn't need more accommodation. So it's really family formation that we look at and demographics. It's really another factor that people haven't talked about too much, but you pointed it out, was the return of cashed-up expats, the fact that they're actually affecting property price growth. It's been estimated that there's actually hundreds of thousands of people who've returned to Australia over the last year, many of them coming from cities that had much more expensive property markets. So many of these returning expats are bringing in money behind them. They've got good money from overseas with stronger currencies, and they've uh, that's supercharged their buying capacity. So they're coming from expensive cities like London, Hong Kong, New York, and they don't consider Perth or Melbourne or Sydney property prices unaffordable. In fact, as you said, they're happy to pay almost whatever is necessary to get a prestigious property in their desired yeah. location. So what's driven this is more demographics rather than population growth. And one of my underlying philosophies of property markets is it's actually demographics, how many of us there are, how we want to live, where we want to live, that's going to affect our property markets moving forward rather than uh, small changes in interest rates or things like that. And I guess when population growth does start from the overseas immigrants, they often come to renting first and that could you mm. know, initially impact that that part of our market and start pushing rents up before it maybe even gets to the housing market as much. How else do you see the population affecting different segments of the market? Well, immigrants often rent for a while because they're not sure where they want to live. I mean, they know that that's where their job is or they know that's where the university is. So in general, they come to our capital cities. They don't come to regional Australia. All they know is where they are going to position themselves for a short time. So they rent until they find where others in their community are or where their job settles down. So that's one of the reasons the short term, a year and a half or so now of lack of population growth hasn't affected property values much, but it clearly has affected the rental market because I know you have a, a very large property management division. As a smart investor, you know how to look after your tenants and your landlords. And similarly, we have a large property management division in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. And we've noticed increased vacancies. Fortunately, most of our properties that we manage uh, are not have, have not been affected by the lack of immigrants or Airbnb or students. Um, our investors tend to avoid those locations. So really, it's the rental markets have been more affected than housing value markets. Hmm. But okay. if we think about it, over the long term, Australia's got a business plan. So overseas migration will return. Both sides of the government have accepted that. We've got a business plan to grow our population to 40 million people by 2050, Jared. Now, we okay. plan to get to 30 million by 2030. That's not likely to happen. We're probably only going to get to about 29 million. But that means... That if you get in the property market now as an investor today, you're ahead of, I don't know, three and a half million other people are going to buy their properties in the next eight or nine years. We need to bring these people in to grease the wheels of industry, to bring skilled labour in, to increase the tax base, more people paying taxes. There's been one study after the other showing that immigrants do not take jobs away but create more jobs in Australia than they they, they replace. 
And, and so it's going to be necessary for our government to have this bigger tax base to slowly pay off the debt that it's taken on to get us across the bridge, as Scott Morrison said. Yeah. And you mentioned, I guess, the different demographics and what they want and, a, and what is desirable driving the different markets. And I guess one of the trends I've seen from afar is in Perth, We've always preferred detached houses and we've never really mm-hmm. embraced that higher density living that, say, Sydney, for instance, has. Do you have any insights, I guess, as to what COVID is doing towards these trends? And I know it's early days and, and this is probably just more on the ground and not showing up in statistics yet, but COVID's obviously had a big impact on remote working and, and I guess how people see that interplay between work and Home, do you have any um, thoughts on how that's going to affect our market? Well, yes, our research department has done a lot of work on that to understand what the trends are moving forward. And you're right, at this point, it isn't showing in the ABS statistics so far. But if you think about it, prior to COVID, in the eastern states, not as much in Perth, people were trading space for place. They were giving up their backyards to move to inner city, to be in the right place. Uh, They're trading their backyards for balconies and courtyards. But that was totally turned on its head during COVID, particularly in, in Melbourne when the city, the CBD was locked down and people are now moving to suburbs. One of the things that has changed is the understanding the importance of your neighbourhood, the ability to work, to live, to play, all within 20 minutes is now the new gold standard of desirable lifestyle. Uh, so here on in Melbourne in particular, Sydney to a degree, Brisbane hasn't been as much affected by COVID. Um, and in Western Australia, you were very much isolated by it, uh, partly geographically and also you closed your borders. But here now, people are comfortable working from home. All things that you need to do if they're a short walk away makes life a lot easier. Now, there's nothing new about this. Urban planners for a long time have been trying to grow the concept of a 20-minute neighbourhood. And in the COVID normal world, that's what people want. They want the shopping, the business, the education, the community facilities all nearby. That's really easy in many of our inner suburbs in our eastern states. It's not likely as much to happen in the outer suburbs where the facilities aren't there. So people want not just a Coles or an Aldi. They want a Coles, an Aldi and a Woolworths. They don't want just one gym. They want a number of gyms. They were looking for a number of cafe, bars, etc. They've recognised the importance of the third place. The first place is your home. The second place is where you work. And in urban planning, the third place is your neighbourhood. So number one, the change of where we want to live has changed. A lot of millennials are now moving they're at the family formation stage of their life anyway, and that's the big trend. That's the big bulk of Australians now moving in, into family formation states, so they're looking for homes. And then how people want to live has changed also. We want a Zoom room. We need a Zoom room. We, we need a garage where you can put a gym there, so you want a higher ceiling. You want a backyard. Uh, you want some security. So I think not only where we live, but how and the sort of accommodation we want. So whether it's detached houses or in the eastern suburb states, townhouses, which are detached, but uh, are on a more compact block, they've also become a very, very preferred style of living, Jared. We're definitely missing that middle form of density here 
And I think there's a big opportunity for investors to be ahead of the curve by looking at how you've embraced it because we've only either got the higher density apartments or the large blocks and and nothing much in between. Part of the reason that's happened, Jared, is because of the expense of the land, the cost Mm. of the land. In Melbourne, in the 60s and 70s, we built villa units, which is where a lot of the older people retired. They moved out of their homes and they wanted single-storey, often only two-bedroom, one big bedroom, one smaller bedroom, but a bit of a front yard, a bit of a backyard. And that's the way a lot of people downsized. Today, that's the domain of a lot of first-home buyers who want to live in those inner suburbs. They want to live in the more established locations, but they can't afford a home. The next level up then is the old houses that we're pulling down and building two townhouses. And in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, that's occurring. I was only in Brisbane a couple of weekends ago and some of the suburbs are totally gentrifying where those old Queenslanders, the wooden houses high up raised are now being pulled down and they're because the blocks there are in many cases already subdivided into two 400 odd square meter blocks so they pull down the old house and build two well they don't call them townhouses there because they're totally separate homes so that's just a way of getting in the right location but in a more affordable way. So you've still got a good land component, but you've got modern accommodation on a compact block of land, Jared. And Western Australia, guys, you'll catch up. Just watch (laughs) what we're doing and follow. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Michael. I know we've got so many other topics that we could cover, so hopefully I'll get you back again sometime soon. But in the meantime, where can people learn more, I guess, and get your insights and also some help from the team at Metropole? Thank you for the opportunity. Well, my blog, Property Update, has last year alone had 2.7 million readers. So if you want to find out a bit about property, tax, finance, success, propertyupdate.com.au. Like you, I have a podcast. Just look for the Michael Yardney podcast. And my team at Metropole don't sell property, but we give strategic advice. And if you go to metropole.com.au, you can find out all about us. Fabulous. And catch you next time, Michael. Thank you.